Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. So I just came back from some traveling. Hello to all my new friends out there that I made on this trip. I spent quite a bit of time in airports. I mean, you have to, right, when you're traveling halfway around the world. And you know what? There is a universal truth about airports everywhere. People like to have a drink when they are waiting to get on an airplane. Why is that? And why are bars open so early at airports anyway? I mean, alcohol service at airports like JFK in New York can start as early as 6 in the morning. Now, Rachel Sugar is a writer and contributor for The Atlantic and has written about this. She joins us now. Good morning, Rachel. Hi. Now, was this something that you noticed while you were at an airport? Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by airports, airports, airport behavior is so bizarre to me. Um, the way you feel in an airport is interesting to me. So when, when my editor and I were talking about, you know, things I might work on, um, this sort of, uh, little fragment of airport behavior came up. Right. So no matter where you go in an airport, you will undoubtedly find somebody having a drink no matter what time of day it was. Now, you you talked to somebody who was doing that, right? Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I was at the airport. It was fairly quiet. Um, I was kind of wandering around looking. There are so many, even in a relatively quiet terminal, um, there are quite a few bars um, all open, all, you know, at this was like seven in the morning. Um, and I started chatting with a woman who was traveling for work and on her second Bloody Mary and very chatty um, and super nice. Um, and I feel like she was sort of, she was airport drinking. Like she was, she was drinking an order that she told me she would never order outside an airport. Like this is her, this is her airport routine. Wait a minute. What time of day was this? This was, I think, I think by the time I talked to her, it was about 9. Um, A.M.? Between 7 and 9. 9 a.m., yeah. <laughs> so she was on her second Bloody Mary. She would not normally go somewhere and order a couple of Bloody Marys at that hour of the morning. What is it about an airport then, Rachel, that makes people do this, do you think? Oh, my goodness. I think there are so many things going on. Um, and I think we'll sort of go, starting with, like, the most obvious Um, time zones are a big thing. So it's, you know, whatever time it is in the airport, but for the traveler, it's sort of whatever time their body thinks it is from where they came from. And that could be really different. It may be sort of a more appropriate drinking time um, where they came from. Um, And they may have been up for hours. So, you know, you could have been traveling for, you know, nine hours by the time you're at this airport and it feels sort of either like it's time for a drink or like it's no time at all. Like you have no sense of what time it is. Um, so I think that's one thing that's going on. I think another thing that's going on, you know, obviously is the possibility of anxiety, like people flying. Oh, that's is, true. 
unsettling um, and sort of a way to have your little ritual to um, not think about what you're about to do, which is which is crazy. Flying is crazy. Um, it's stressful. Think, it's stressful, right? And yeah. maybe people do that to right. ease the stress. Yeah. Well, right. Because there's the there's the flying on the plane. The literal like, how does this work? This is this is unsettling. Um, but there's also the stress of the airport, which I think is a is a big thing. Um, and this need for you know, in your daily life, you like to sort of have control over things. In the airport, you kind of can't have control over things. You need to sort of surrender your flight's going to come when it comes there's nothing you can do about it um you know delays are delays reroutes are reroutes. like there's you know it's not really in your interest to be fighting it and i think sort of some researchers i was talking to were talking about this but you know one one advantage of alcohol is it kind of shuts your brain up a little bit um you don't have control but okay you know you got to surrender so you might as well drink, I guess, is what people people think helps pass the time. Well, this doesn't just I seem mean, like think, very healthy behavior, I guess. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, that's certainly fair. I, I think you know, there's a, there's there's a pretty strong argument. I think that alcohol does serve sort of social functions, um, and this is one of them. You know, another thing that that I think is going on here um, is that alcohol helps you sort of one social function is that it helps you transition from sort of your daily life to whatever you're doing. And you, you see this even with happy hour, right? Like a standard happy hour or having a drink after work is a way to sort of tell your life and your body and, you know, sort of transition from like, this was the work day to this is my leisure time. Um, and I think, you know, I, I was a person who was sort of high powered and in control of my life. And now I'm in the airport and I'm hmm. sort of going with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think... Yeah, I could see I could see that. Like my, yeah. my airport routine consists of finding any and every bookstore because that's what I'm going to do when I get there. So I guess for some people, though, it is, I'm going to sit down and have a drink. Exactly. Yeah, I think, I think sort of the healthiest way to look at it is like it's equivalent to buying, you know, I always buy a magazine or something. Um, you know, uh, most of the people I talked to, um, both in the airport and then researchers that I was talking to for this piece, didn't seem to think that it was, that this was, that most people drinking in the airport at 7 a.m. are always drinking at 7 a.m., that there, that there are people who are really struggling right. with alcohol. Some of them probably are. Like, you know, to some degree, we're seeing behavior that you just wouldn't normally see because where else would you would you see someone drinking at 6 a.m. in public? <laughs> That's so true. Where else would you see that? Listen, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So former President Donald Trump is going to host the first fundraiser of his new presidential campaign tomorrow night. Now, this is going to come just hours after he is expected to be arraigned in court after being indicted on Friday on numerous charges dealing with classified information. And that right there describes the state of affairs in U.S. politics these days. But let's learn more about these charges. What are they all about? Joseph Ferguson joins us now. He's an adjunct professor and co-director of the National Security and Civil Rights Program at Loyola University, Chicago. Joseph, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Good morning. Now, can you give us an idea? What do these charges encompass? Um, the, the the lead set of charges, and there's there's numerous counts here, but uh, the first 31 counts relate to violations of the Espionage Act, which generally folks would say, well, was there spying going on? That's not the only thing that the Espionage Act covers. It covers um, uh, knowing uh, retention of classified information. And here, as described in the indictment, we're talking about the most sensitive uh, types of information possessed by the government, which a president is not allowed to maintain possession of and retain um, after he has left office. And here, it's not only a matter of retention uh, and keeping these documents in all sorts of um, colorful and concerning ways, but also a series of events to obstruct the U.S. government, both with respect to the National Archives and with respect to the FBI and the Justice Department to obstruct efforts to recover those documents because they are they are properly um, the possession and the property of the United States, and they have to be kept in um, uh, sensitive, compartmented um, facilities um, to make sure that they are protected. And so there was a conspiracy to obstruct, which is charged in multiple ways, this possession of an extraordinarily large number of very, very um, uh, serious level classified information. And that's what struck me in reading through the indictment here is that we got a lot more details about what these documents actually were. Now, when you read through there, what alarmed you about these documents? Um, The sheer volume. And um, uh, I think um, the, the single most alarming thing was not so much, and all of this is alarming, but not simply the concealment and the effort to dodge because people who know they did something wrong, that's a first reaction, is an, is an effort to sidestep, but that they were actually used in discussions with ordinary citizens, with people from the political realm, by the president, in conversations in which he acknowledges they are still classified, and there he is acting transactionally with them with these documents. That's a real concern. That is very striking. It essentially constitutes a form of oral transmission of these these documents. The transmissions aren't charged. They're made part of the conspiracy um, and the acts in furtherance of conspiracy. But we're also talking about transmitting um, highly sensitive information bearing upon the national security and defense interests of the United States. And what do we know about these particular documents? Like what was so top secret about them? 
um, includes information about nuclear weaponry, includes information that um, uh, involved um, uh, uh, military plans of a contingent nature in the event that the United States needed to take certain forms of responsive military action. Um, And in that sense, the disclosure of that type of information actually puts lives at risk and undermines the capacity of the United States as a sovereign government um, uh, to provide for both the safety of its own personnel and um, uh, to serve the interests of its allies um, internationally. Right. And so, as you were saying, though, it seems like an awful lot of people knew about this, though, didn't they, Joseph? Because as you point out, there was a lot of discussion about these documents. Um, Yeah, they were maintained um, at Mar-a-Lago. There was not any type of um, uh, uh, facility to maintain them in a protected fashion. They were sitting in boxes randomly in odd places like bathrooms. Um, and um, they were actually pulled out um, uh, in, a, in a couple of instances that are detailed in the indictment and shared with folks that have absolutely no need to know, no rationale for, their, for, for the disclosure being shared with them in conversation. So where does this go from here? Because as I was saying earlier, you know, you've got the in, the appearance in the courtroom coming tomorrow and then a fundraiser tomorrow night. Is this just more fodder for the political campaign? Like, what's the fallout from this? Well, um, what we know over the long arc of, of Donald Trump's um, uh, career, um, before he was a politician and while he has been a politician and certainly as president and beyond, is that um, basically the tactical approach to every crisis is to double down. And um, so um, as with everything else that preceded, Donald Trump will use this or attempt to use this um, to deepen a narrative um, of grievance um, for political benefit and to raise money from it. And it and it sets up a really, really complicated landscape in moving into a presidential election season. Why? Because at the same time, um, Donald Trump has First Amendment rights, political association rights, and um, um, the right to speak freely um, in in pursuing public office and otherwise. And that runs up against the national security interests. This is an incredibly tough balancing act that a judge is going to have to deal with um, to both assure that um, uh, Donald Trump, who is charged um, but is presumed um, uh, innocent and will, I'm certain, plead not guilty um, to make sure that his rights aren't unduly um, constricted um, as a political actor um, while the criminal justice system moves forward um, and to make sure that um, at the same time the national security interests of the United States aren't put at risk by somebody who has shown himself incapable of not talking about this stuff. It is fascinating, though, Joseph, isn't it? Because you think any other person, any other candidate, and this would be the end of that candidate, that's not going to be the case here. It's not going to be the case. And let's put a fine point on it here. Um, uh, 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 Former President Trump and his allies um, in Congress and otherwise um, have mounted um, a basically a campaign um, uh, to cast a narrative that the, that the criminal justice system has been weaponized against him. Again, part of that larger narrative of grievance. And the fact of the matter is, is that he is getting consideration and benefits that nobody 
who has done what he has done would get. In this type of case, anybody else who is charged would be detained pretrial and probably subject to very, very restrictive measures in terms of the monitoring uh, of all of his conversations and who he can actually meet and have conversations with. And we have an allowance at the other end of the spectrum that has him going out into public talking about this and using this in the service of a political campaign. It's extraordinary. It, that's a good word for it. It is extraordinary. Joseph, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a name that you probably hadn't thought of in quite a few years, but now it's back in the news, right? We've heard that the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, passed away in prison last week. And now all of a sudden we're talking again about just how shocking his crimes were and what led up to all of that. He launched a bombing campaign from his cabin in the deep woods in rural Montana resulted in the deaths of three people, injured 23 others before he was finally arrested in 1996. And remember his manifesto. It was his anti-technology manifesto that was called Industrial Society and Its Future that was actually published uh, by the Washington Post back in 1995 when all of this first came to light. And so what is the impact of that? Like, has there been an influence on that from back then to today? Well, to talk more about that now, we're joined by Dr. Sean Fleming, Research Fellow in the School of Politics and International Relations at Nottingham University. Dr. Fleming, thank you for being here. Hi, Simi. My pleasure. Do you think a lot of people had kind of, you know, forgotten about Ted Kaczynski until this, this latest news? I think the public has forgotten about him, but I don't think he's been forgotten in radical circles. He's still widely read in the underground. Really? In what way? Why? Why is it still so attractive? Well, partly, I think his ideas respond to some of the key problems of our time. So he's talking about artificial intelligence, global warming, alienation, depression, anxiety, and so on. And so I think his ideas resonate with radicals, as they have since the publication of his manifesto. And what was it in his manifesto? Can you give us an idea of what he was writing about? Well, the main claim of the manifesto is that human beings are maladapted to the modern world. We're, biologically speaking, Stone Age hunter-gatherers. And we've been thrust into this world of concrete and steel. And our minds and bodies can't handle that. And so this is why he thinks people are so depressed and anxious and otherwise unsettled in modern society. And yet, since that time, like that was the mid-1990s, think about how much technology has changed since then. Yeah, that's right. His ideas seem increasingly prescient as time goes on. And I think this is why there's been such a Unabomber revival. So there has been a Unabomber revival? Like in what way? Well, in a couple of ways. There are many people who accept his diagnosis of the problems of modern society but don't follow him all the way down the path to violent revolution. So they think we can restrain technology or engage in a process of technological retrenchment. We can gradually go back or gradually get to a a sort of slower and more comfortable world. But then there are others, and these aren't as well publicized. Uh, There's a Mexican terrorist group that's known as ITS, which picked up where Kaczynski left off and began sending bombs to scientists around 2011. Um, 
hasn't this always been the case, though, Dr. Fleming? Like, hasn't as long as there has been any kind of technology or any kind of advancement, have there not always been people who are opposed to it? That's true. There's always been a primitivist sentiment. The, the Luddites are the famous ones. So in response to the Industrial Revolution and the automation and destruction of their livelihoods, they went around burning factories in places like Nottingham, where I am. So there's always been primitivism, but I think Kaczynski's flavor of primitivism is sort of new. So whereas the Luddites were concerned about the effects of technology on, on labor and society, Kaczynski is more concerned about the biological and psychological effects of technology. Right. So, so he the may ideas be- have always been around, but this is a genuinely new iteration of them. Right. So he may be gone, but you think his ideas that he put forth are, are going to live on? Oh, I, I think that's definitely the case. I think this is the beginning of the Unabomber revival. All right, Dr. Fleming, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How good at we are we at managing our wildfire situation? Like, do we have a good plan? We know that forest fire activity has significantly gone up right across the country, right? We've all seen those pictures now of, of the wildfire smoke in New York City where you can't even see Manhattan from Brooklyn. I mean, this was making headlines all over the world. So what are we doing about this in terms of our planning? So should we be more motivated to prioritize better fire management practices? Well, joining us now is Kenneth Green, environmental scientist and senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Kenneth, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Do we Good have a lot- with you. Thank you. Well, do we have a lot of work to do in this area? We certainly have some work to do in this area. I mean, a lot of fires or most fires are probably managed pretty well, but the periodic uh, conflagration of the sort we're seeing now uh, and as we see in the United States now and then, uh, the risk of those huge uh, wildfires, clearly the fact that they keep happening suggests the risk is not being managed as well as it could be. Um, and so, yes, there's work to be done on uh, on pro- pro- proactively, I hate that word, but it's, it's the one we have, <laughs> proactively reducing the risk of these huge uh, countrywide or, or, or region-wide outbreaks of forest fires. Wait a minute, why do you uh, hate that, we that word? Better, we can do better than we have. Why so do you hate proactively? Proactive. It's just a pet peeve because it's, it's, it's not a word. So. <laughs> <laughs> but we, I get the idea of it, though. But you're right, though. So, like, we do, we spend a lot of time fighting wildfires after they start. Can we do more right. to get us to a point where that's less of an issue? Well, the article by Timstra that I cited in the National Post op-ed suggests that we can. They talk a lot about the fact that the wildfires are managed on a case-by-case basis in Canada, and the assessment is what to be done about them tends to be about control and how to control the individual fires. In terms of a broad national strategy that looks at using wildfires or allowing wildfires to burn more in certain areas in order to reduce the feedstock seems to be what's missing uh, because there's not, there's, there's not an understanding that it's going to be necessary to tolerate fire 
uh, wildfires, some some smaller uh, wildfires, uh, for longer in order to reduce the stock to prevent the really big ones. Uh, and and I think I found their arguments pretty con- pretty uh, compelling, which again is why I, I cited their work in my piece. Okay, so what does it mean when we say that we have to adopt a real world, real time approach to fire risk management? Well, that's what I meant by by which is right now all of the pressure coming out of government, all of the announcements uh, coming out of government are about climate change, and climate change is increasing increasing the risk, and and the answer is always reduce greenhouse gases. Elizabeth May is ready once again, as she is every 15 minutes, to shut down all oil and gas and fossil fuel production everywhere um, as a response to these to the wildfires. Um, and Gilles Bro has administered as well has said the same thing uh, that, that it's it's a fossil fuel thing, but real time real world means not looking at computer models that project climate in fifty to one hundred years and, and using that to base our response to wildfires happening today. Real world means we look at the risk, the loading of the combustible materials in the fires, and we manage the risk day to day, again, by, by allowing or, or even promoting small, smaller wildfires and controlled burns. Uh, and we do that on an ongoing basis uh, across. Well, we just lost Kenneth, as you can tell there by that sound. And you know, we were having such an interesting conversation about wildfire management practices there, but we're going to try to grab him back in just a second because I want to hear the rest of his thoughts on that. Uh, But what we're talking about is the ways in which we need to improve our, and he hates that word, but proactivity when it comes to this, that we need to be better at finding ways to prevent forest fires, to do more, uh, to make sure we're managing that whole situation better rather than just, you know, throwing a lot of money at fighting them when they do break out. And that's a tough situation. Kenneth, I'm so sorry we lost you there for a second, but you were on a roll talking about this. Please continue your thoughts. Sure. So uh, what I was saying was basically at the national level, the response to this uh, from our government and our, our leading officials uh, has been to blame it on climate change. Uh, and yes, the climate is warming. And yes, that's probably a, a contributing factor. But their solutions are based on computer modeling of what's going to happen to the climate in 50 years. And their focus is on reducing greenhouse gas emissions over this next 50 to 100 years. Instead of looking today at the fuel that's on the ground today in the forest today and has been for the last several years to the point that it's been building up to a crisis and managing that in a real time, real world, day to day manner. Uh, that is consistent with using fire to to fight fire, fighting fire with fire. Right. Uh, and and th- that's what I meant by, by saying real-time, real-world response. And we don't do enough of that, though, I feel like. We don't talk about uh, clearing parts of the forest floor or, you know, the things that people need to do in communities that might be wildfire-prone, using different materials for roofs and, like, all of that kind of stuff. We talk about it, it feels like, after the fact, but are, are we doing enough to put those things in place? I think those, a lot of those things we're not talking about, as you said, people, I think there's an innate resistance to accommodate fire. People are afraid of it. Uh, people don't like the, the, the look afterward. It has impacts on you know, property values, also aesthetics. Uh, and so I, I think there is a general um, resistance to looking at these things. The, the paper that I talked about uh, discusses what is done, which is really kind of brute force, which is uh, first there, there are permit, uh, permits issued to allow certain burns, then there are bans on burning and fireworks. Then there can be closures of entire forest areas. But these are, as you point out, these are these are sort of brute force, um, blunt go or no go kind of approaches, as opposed to managing the risk more uh, more deeply and in a more nuanced way. And no, I don't think there's enough of that. 
Yeah, right. So do you think in the last week then, despite all these headlines and all these pictures, are we, we're still not having that conversation? No, we're not having that conversation because it was immediately dominated um, by a discussion of climate change, which immediately flows into the government's goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And that, that has subsumed virtually all climate and environment policy uh, in Canada and, and arguably globally. Right. Uh, and so, so the conversation immediately goes to how do we control greenhouse gas emissions when, when the conversation needs to be going to how do we actually control the real honest-to-goodness fires that are burning and how do we prevent or lower the risk of those fires happening on a regular basis or an increasing basis. Right. Yeah, but um, Kenneth, but you, you also said yeah. it there too, is that we are part of the problem, right? Like we are part of the problem because we resist doing things uh, that might be a little challenging for us to help the situation in terms of making those choices about clearing things out and changing what we use to build our houses and that kind of stuff. Well, absolutely. I mean, the human factor, we are part of the environment. Uh, you know, unlike a lot of environmentalists, I think humans actually are part of the environment. <laughs> and, and so certainly our response to fire is part of the problem, which is, do we accommodate ourselves to the fact that there will be fires, that there will be periods where there will be smoke in the air at lower levels, and we take those lower level risks to avoid huge conflagrations of the sort we're seeing now and the higher level risks attendant with the levels of smoke we're seeing. Uh, and that's a conversation that needs to happen. And, and I think I think people's risk aversion uh, in the small scale is actually compromising their, their risk aversion in the large scale. I think that's very true. Kenneth, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Anytime. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it has been a challenge for decades how to adequately and really, come on, more than adequately, look after patients with dementia. How do you help them feel safe, secure, healthy, and to live the best that they can. Well, with care models, it is a very challenging situation, right? And that's why the Dementia Village in Langley, or the Village Langley, as it's called, uh, which opened a couple of years ago, has been making headlines all over the world. It's a very different model, a very different way of doing things. And now that it's been up and running for a couple of years, we wanted to check in and talk about the challenges and really how it's been going. So joining us now is Elroy Jesperson, who's president of the Village Langley. Elroy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And how are things going at the village? Things are going well. Um, We're totally full. We have people waiting to get in. Uh, The villagers, when I'm there walking around, are happy and engaged and active. And I'm thinking, this is what we dreamed about. It's working. Okay, when you say dreamed about it, tell me about the path to, to making this come to fruition. What was that like? Well, it was a long and winding road. Uh, I worked, before I retired, I worked for um, 30 years in the senior living and care business. And um, one of my jobs was developing and opening up and operating new retirement communities across Canada. And even though we did a really good job for the most part, there was one group that I saw that we were not being able to adequately serve. And that was Uh, people who were living with dementia. And so I started looking around and thinking, we need to do it differently, and who else is doing it differently? And so I looked into the States, and I learned about the household model and the greenhouse, and and I uh, uh, learned about the Hogeve in the Netherlands, which had created this dementia village. And I thought, why can't we do something like that, take elements of these models from other places and do it here um, 
And I had a team that I worked with who got excited about doing it. And um, the big challenge that we had was to find uh, a place and that had adequate land to allow us to uh, turn our vision into a reality. And it took us a couple of years of looking, but uh, eventually I saw this unused school site for sale in Langley that we were lucky enough to purchase and away we went. Okay, what makes this so different, though, Elroy? How how does this work? Uh, A couple of things that uh, make it different. Uh, Obviously, the uh, physical environment is different. We're on seven acres. Uh, We have six residential-sized houses where 12 people live with other other villagers. These houses are connected uh, by a lot of different walking paths. Uh, at the back of uh, of the property, we have a barn with uh, some farm animals, uh, gardens, and at the front of the property, we have a, a community center, uh, which is sort of our gathering point for the village that uh, contains uh, bistro, workshop, store, activity spaces, a hair salon. Uh, and so from a physical point of view, you, you don't feel like you're in a place that would be caring for people living with dementia. The other, the other big difference is uh, our focus, our framework. Most other traditional care facilities, they would really focus on the care aspect of, of uh, somebody living with dementia. What help do they need? What do we need to do to get a care plan in place? And even though we do that, but it's all in aid of helping people live their own best life. And so we really focus on who who is that person. We get need to get to know them. We need to understand uh, what they are interested in, what connections are important. Uh, we uh, help them make choices throughout their day. Uh, we provide opportunities for them to be of service to their community have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And ultimately, it's to uh, have them find joy in their day. And so our focus is on that. Is the We call that enriched living. It's on the enriched living aspect supported by the physical care. Uh, and I think that focus really uh, allows people to do what they want to do when they want to do it, with whom they want to do it, and and live their own best life. So, Elroy, are people specially trained, are the people who work there specially trained then to deal with dementia patients? Because what happens then when there is a situation where somebody needs a little extra help or there is some confusion or, or or they need some assistance? Yeah, everybody, all the people that we have working have sort of the basic uh, care aid course that you would find in any uh, facility in in BC. But in addition to that, uh, we have our own little training program through uh, our dementia consultant that supports uh, them. And so the, the the biggest challenge is to take somebody who has been trained traditionally and have them think differently, think more about who is this person and how can I facilitate uh, an enriched living experience as opposed to uh, what do they need me to do for them today. And you know, some people find it harder than others to to make that switch in in thinking. Is there so they can family come and visit and see their loved ones in these situations? Absolutely. We've had families stay 
overnight, uh, you know, uh, family there a lot. Some, you know, family, it's, it's open. It's, it's home. Uh, you know, one of the things we want to do is to make the village Langley home for the 75 villagers who live there, which means that they can invite whoever they want to be part of their life whenever they want to do that. So it, it's, you know, just like living in their home that they came from. Okay, but then why can't we do more of this than Elroy? Like, obviously, this is a, there's a cost factor here as well, because I'm sure not everybody can afford to do this. No, I mean, when we did this, we knew that if one of the, one of our objectives was uh, we needed to show that this is possible. And because people would say, this is great. Can I look at one? And I said, no, there is none. So that was a big motivation to build it. And so we fortunately had the private resources that we could put in to get this done. Now, the people who live there pay the entire cost of the operation, the, you know, paying the mortgage, all of the capital costs that we had now. And it is, it, it's way too expensive for many people. However, we, it's not any more expensive to operate than what a more traditional place is. The difference is the government is paying a whole lot of money to the operator and the person living there is paying a small portion. So it isn't, uh, in my mind, a matter of, oh, it's way too expensive to operate. Um, it It's not a priority. My experience with government, they're reactionists. They're not proactionists. And at this point, unless... Somebody is saying there is another way and why aren't we doing it and you should be doing it. We'll carry on doing what we've been doing for many years. Oh, it is fascinating. Elroy, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thank you.